How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with award-winning historian and author Adam Hochschild as we discuss his book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. It's a pleasure to be with you, David. So in part two of your book, you talk about what happens when Woodrow Wilson goes to Europe, Paris, um, for six months. Uh, That was unheard of at that time for it to be away that long when there wasn't instant communications. Why did he think he needed to go there to negotiate the peace? Didn't we have a secretary of state or other people that could do that? We did, but Wilson was not very good at delegating powers. uh, And he really didn't do much delegation. And I think he actually came to to think of himself, as it's been said, as president of the world during this period. Uh, Here he was, head of the country that had by far the world's largest economy, Moreover, the other people he was negotiating with to figure out the shape of the post-war world, the chiefs of state of Britain, France, Italy, and so on, were people who were leading countries that had been absolutely devastated in this war. You know, huge numbers of their young men killed, their economies exhausted, You know, in the case of France, uh, large portions of its land absolutely ravaged, uh, filled with bomb craters and unexploded shells and so on. And then when talks with Germany came into the picture at the end of this period, Germany had been even more ravaged in terms of the number of deaths and the way its economy had been wrecked. So he felt himself to be in quite a powerful position. And I think he felt he had to be on the scene to arranged the shape of the world that was to follow the war. So when he gets to Europe, he's treated like a conquering hero, like uh, no one had ever been treated before, practically, uh, almost like Caesar is coming uh, back to Rome after a, a great conquest. Why is he treated almost like a god figure? Well, he had given these noble speeches about uh, the shape of the post-war world, uh, the 14 points necessary for, for peace, self-determination and democracy for all peoples, uh, you know, a League of Nations, which would make sure the world would never go to war again. And he was a noble figure in people's eyes. And I think they read into him whatever they wanted to see. Uh, You know, we often do that with noble figures. It's why people are so fascinated by royalty, for instance, I think. You always imagine that that monarch is somehow benign and has your interest uh, at heart. 
So everywhere he went, Wilson was greeted with parades, showers of flowers, people cheering him. Furthermore, among the Allied countries, you know, Britain, France, Italy, and so forth, they were deeply grateful to the United States because the two million young American men that Wilson had sent to Europe into battle, the vast river of military supplies were what had allowed the Allies to win the war. Wilson was not thought of, of course, as a big hero in Germany, but in, in the other parts of Europe, Britain, France, Italy, Belgium, and so on, he definitely was. So to put it in context, the English and the French are thinking we were ravaged by this war. We didn't start it. We really want to punish the Germans. Wilson's view is, well, let's not be making them so uh, vanquished that they might start another war. And so there's this divide between the French, the British, and the Americans. How does that ultimately get resolved? And why does Wilson, in the end, seem to give in to the English and French point of view? Wilson was not a very good negotiator. John Maynard Keynes, the great economist who was in the British delegation at the peace talks that led to the peace at Versailles, observed that Wilson seemed to have no experience in negotiating with people uh, as equals. He had always been, you know, either president of Princeton or president of the United States or governor of New Jersey. And he didn't have any sense of how to negotiate with people who were his equals, how sometimes they needed to save face, how maybe you could make a small concession that would make them look better, and then they would agree to what you were wanting. Didn't have any sense of that. And he was also at a disadvantage because the people he was negotiating with, the principal partners, were Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau of France and Prime Minister Lloyd George of Britain. Clemenceau was in his own capital. Lloyd George was half a day's travel away from his. But Wilson was on the other side of the Atlantic from the United States, and that meant almost a week's journey by steamship. So they could easily rally support at home. And they both had been elected on platforms of vengeance, make the Germans pay for all that they did, the way they wrecked our economy, killed hundreds of thousands, millions, in fact, of our young men, and so on. They just bore down on Wilson. He was not a good negotiator. He was weakened by himself catching influenza in the great pandemic of that time. His health was not good. He apparently suffered the first of a number of small strokes when he was in Paris. And finally, he gave in to what they wanted, which was harsh reparations imposed on Germany, which many people uh, in the United States and elsewhere felt this is going to make the Germans so angry they'll start another war. Mind you, I don't think even if there had been no reparations imposed on Germany that it would have prevented a Second World War. The situation there was that Germany had totally controlled its uh, newspapers and the news media during the war. German people had been told up to the very last minute that their country was on the verge of victory. And it actually looked that way in mid-1918 when German troops almost reached the gates of Paris. So it was a real shock to Germany when the armistice agreement, which was in effect a German surrender, happened. And it, that really 
laid the groundwork for Hitler to claim that the army had been winning the war, but until it was stabbed in the back by communist pacifists and Jews. So the final agreement is um, one that the Germans obviously don't like. They have to go along with it because their people are beginning to starve. They're not getting food and so forth. But the English and the French put into the agreement the League of Nations that Wilson so badly wanted. Did they really want the League of Nations or was that just a, a sop to, to Wilson? I think it was a sop to Wilson. And the irony, of course, is that Wilson, who had pushed this idea relentlessly against considerable lack of enthusiasm from his two principal negotiating partners, he could not get the United States to join the League of Nations because the U.S. Senate, which had to ratify the treaty, was dead set against it. There was strong isolationist feeling in the United States. There was a horror a sort of feeling that's still there today of joining any kind of international organization which might erode American sovereignty in any way. And the votes was never anywhere near the two-thirds majority of the Senate that was necessary right. uh, to ratify any treaty. So when the war ends, Wilson comes back, tries to get the League of Nations approved, uh, doesn't get it approved. Uh, for a while. He goes on a tour around the United States designed to rally support for the League of Nations. Uh, what happens on that tour and how did it ultimately end his presidency effectively? It was a sort of a poignant trip because he was so attached to this idea of the League and that this would sort of solve the problem of war forever that he was convinced he had to speak. And of course, he was a very, very eloquent speaker, one of the great orators of his time. He had to speak over the heads of these recalcitrant senators directly to their constituents. So he set off on a tour of the country, which meant mainly the Midwest and Far West, where the senators who were most opposed to the treaties came from. And Remember, a speaking tour in those days was really a shouting tour because this was before the days of public address systems. So if you wanted to address, you know, 10,000 people gathered in a baseball stadium or something, you had to speak in a loud enough voice so that they could all hear you. A tremendous strain for a man in very fragile health. And so his train made its way around the country. Uh, he gave these very eloquent and forceful speeches. He exhausted himself while doing so, and while on board this train, had the first major stroke that really it canceled his trip. And uh, a week later, when he was back in the White House, he had an even more severe stroke. His wife found him unconscious, and really he was essentially largely out of commission for the last year and a half of his presidency, he had trouble walking. It was five months before he could have a cabinet meeting. And when he did, he was extremely passive in it, uh, saying very little. And key decisions were made by a little triumvirate of his secretary, what today we would call chief of staff, his wife and his doctor. Did he consider resigning and letting this vice president uh, become the president? Why was that not done? It was not done because no president is ever reluctant to give up power, something we know all too well. 
The vice president, Thomas Marshall, was widely regarded as a non-entity who was uh, not respected. Uh, he didn't even attend cabinet meetings. And uh, Marshall himself once told somebody a, a story. He said uh, there was a family that had two sons. One of them uh, was lost at sea. The other became vice president, and neither was ever heard from again. So Marshall was just regarded as a non-entity, and they didn't want Wilson to resign and let him take over. While all these events are occurring uh, with President Wilson, the country is uh, reeling from some economic uh, challenges. Uh, there are major labor union strikes, uh, municipal strikes, the Boston police go on strike. Why were there so many strikes at that time? Was this because people thought that uh, they weren't getting a fair shake out of the economy or just labor unions were better organized than before? Well, it was a couple of things going on. First, there was a lot of economic stress because in the year 1919, some 4 million men were released from the U.S. armed forces. 2 million of them had been overseas. 2 million of them were still in training at home when the war ended. So the labor market was flooded with these 4 million guys looking for work. Uh, and there was very little work because the factories that had been making tanks and ships and guns and fighter planes for the war were shut down since there was no more need for this, this production. Furthermore, inflation had soared during the war, uh, soared far beyond the salaries of many people. So the combination of uh, high inflation, high unemployment put a lot of stress on the economy. Uh, there were many strikes. One out of every five American workers went on strike during the year 1919. There was a lot of racial strife as well, because these four million men looking for work, you know, about 10% of them were black. They felt themselves in competition with their white fellow veterans for jobs. Uh, race riots broke out in uh, some two dozen cities around the country. They really should be called not race riots, but white riots, because in almost all cases, it was a white mob that initiated an attack on black people. Hundreds of people were killed in that violence. We don't know the full death toll because the worst violence took place at a place called Elaine, Arkansas, where local vigilantes and federal militia suppressed a group of uh, black men who were trying to organize a sharecroppers union. Uh, hundreds of them were killed. Their bodies were tossed into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. And so there's no accurate death count. So at this time, uh, there are many people who are trying to take violent actions against the government. And there are some bombs that go off in several cities. One bomb in Washington, D.C. Uh, almost uh, destroyed the house of the attorney general. Uh, Mitchell Palmer. Can you explain where the bombs were coming from? Did they ever find out? And who was Mr. Palmer and how did he become attorney general? Okay. Palmer was a former congressman from Pennsylvania who had uh, actually been offered the job of secretary of war and when Wilson first came to power, but turned it down because he was a Quaker and a pacifist. He said, I can't be Secretary of War. But he had an important post during the war years as something called alien property custodian, where when the U.S. government confiscated German and Austro-Hungarian 
assets in the United States. Somebody had to supervise how these businesses were run and who were appointed as trustees to take care of them and so forth. Uh, then he became Wilson's attorney general in uh, early 1919. He had the reputation as a progressive. He persuaded Wilson to let some of the political prisoners out of jail. But Palmer was a very ambitious man who had his eye on the presidential nomination, the Democratic presidential nomination in 1920. Very determined to get that for himself. Then, as you say, in the spring and summer of 1919, there were these bombings. Today, it is believed that they were all done by a very small group of Italian-American anarchists, followers of a guy named Galliano, a, a group that probably had no more than 50 members around the country. But they were very secretive, effectively so. None of them were ever prosecuted. One of those bombs went off at Palmer's house in Washington, D.C. The bomber tripped on the doorstep and blew up himself as well as the front of the house. Palmer and his wife and daughter, who were at home, were in a different part of the house and were not harmed, but the whole front of his house was wrecked. And this helped set him on the warpath. And I think he also felt that as a law and order candidate, as the nation's chief law enforcement officer, that was what was going to pave his path to the presidency. And he'd had this narrow escape from a violent death himself. It was sort of ideal fodder for a campaign biography in a way. So he then set off on a big campaign to round up radicals. Now, the people he rounded up were not the people who'd done the bombing. As the bombings, as I say, were done by this tiny group of Italian anarchists. But the United States at that point was in the grips of a tremendous red scare because the Bolsheviks had seized power in Russia. And some Americans in the establishment were afraid that the Russian Revolution was going to spread to the United States. Not a realistic fear at all, I think, but it was widely held uh, among the business elite. So there was considerable support among conservatives for rounding up radicals. Palmer appointed a bright young man named J. Edgar Hoover, 24 years old, to head a new division of the Justice Department, the Radical Division, which would report directly to him, Palmer, and target who should be arrested. And then in late 1919, early 1920, they staged what are, have become known as the Palmer Raids, where some 10,000 people around the United States were uh, seized, often roughed up, uh, arrested, and most of them held in detention uh, in preparation, the government hoped to deport them from the country. Now, in deporting people from the country uh, under our laws, you don't deport people who are American citizens or native-born Americans, but you can deport, uh, if you go through the process, people who are not American citizens and not born here. So was the focus to deport people who are not American citizens? Is that what they were focused on? That's what they were doing. And there were millions of people who had immigrated to the United States, but had never bothered to formally get naturalized as citizens. In some cases, they were people who didn't speak English well, 
or it just seemed a lot of bureaucratic hassle to go through that didn't seem necessary for anything, especially at a time when the country seemed to be welcoming immigrants. So they were hoping that the people they'd arrested, you know, many of them would turn out to be non-citizens, which indeed was the case. So uh, an effort is made to deport them, but it turns out that not the Justice Department, but the Department of Labor really in the end has to be in involved with the deportation. And the person who was acting as the Secretary of Labor didn't seem to be that interested in that. Can you explain what that was about? Yeah, he's really one of my heroes in, in American Midnight. Uh, the story is this. It was Palmer's Justice Department that had the power to arrest people. And therefore, as I said, he hoped to pave his way to the presidency. But deportations had to be approved by the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Department of Labor. And at this time, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The person who normally would have taken his place had just resigned to run for Congress. And so the number three person in the Labor Department became acting Secretary of Labor. He was a man named Louis F. Post, who had been uh, before entering the Wilson administration, a progressive journalist. He was not a radical, not a socialist or an anarchist, but he believed very strongly that nobody should be deported from the United States because of his or her political opinions. He was also a very expert lawyer who knew immigration law backwards and forwards and a skillful bureaucrat. And he managed to invalidate thousands of the arrest warrants under which uh, these people Palmer had seized had been arrested, and to prevent thousands of people, we don't know the exact number, but perhaps somewhere around three or 4,000 from being deported from the United States. So in the end, the Palmer raids don't really result in that many people being deported, though J. Edgar Hoover at one point does manage to take some people like Emma Goldman and get them uh, deported. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Emma Goldman was one person on a ship that held 249 radicals whom the government uh, shipped away from New York in just, just before Christmas in uh, 1919. But Hoover and Palmer were foiled in their attempts by Lewis Post to deport large numbers of additional people. So let's go through what happened to all these people, which you point out in the end of the book. What happened to President Wilson? He managed to live through the end of the term, and then what happened to him? He then lived on in Washington in very ill health for another three years or so, uh, didn't do much of anything, and died a little less than three years after he left the White House. His widow, his second wife, Edith, lived on for more than 40 years, was actually a guest at John F. Kennedy's inauguration in 1961, and devoted much of her life to burnishing her late husband's image. Uh, she partly subsidized uh, a multi-volume biography. Uh, she arranged for a Hollywood film glorifying him and his work that actually won five Oscars. She maintained up to the end that he was in full control of the government during this period when he was ill with his stroke uh, and that, you know, it was really only a minor inconvenience. And, uh, you know, she really devoted herself to burnishing his image and thereby hers. And what happened to Mr. Palmer? Uh, Palmer was the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination 
1920 up to the very last minute. And then something caught up with him that had happened a couple of months earlier. Here's what happened. Palmer made the mistake of believing his own propaganda about the Red Menace. And he repeatedly predicted in the spring of 1920 that May Day of that year, the International Workers' Holiday, would be the time for a communist revolution. There would be a communist uprising that was set to happen throughout the United States on that day. Now, why he predicted that, we don't exactly know. He must have been getting some sort of reports from his network of undercover agents who, as such folks often do, supplied what they think the boss wants to hear. So headlines again and again said, you know, Palmer predicts uprising. May 1st, 1920 came. Cities called in extra police. New York put all three shifts of the police force on duty, one out on the street and the other two waiting in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards. They posted security people at uh, railway stations, ferry terminals, bus stations. The National Guard was put on alert. All over the country, things like this happened, and nothing happened. There was no uprising, communist or otherwise. And this began to take the wind out of Palmer's presidential campaign. The Democratic National Convention happened uh, only about six weeks, I think, later, and he failed to win on the first ballot and then began sinking in later ballots and finally withdrew. Uh, he never ran for elective office again although he remained active in democratic politics behind the scenes. Um, one of the other people seeking that nomination was General Wood, who had been a supporter of, and a friend of Teddy Roosevelt. What did he do during the, this period of time to help the American cause, so-called? Yeah, Wood was a major general, close friend of Theodore Roosevelt, as you say, who had been the leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 1920. Uh, he had played a role in putting down some of the strikes and other disturbances in 1919, always blaming everything on the radicals. Whenever you know it was racial violence or whatever, it was always the radicals who were at fault. But he too was really a victim of this gradually changing mood in the country after Palmer's predicted uprising had failed to happen. Uh, Wood's star began to decline, uh, and he failed to make it uh, as the Republican nominee. And the Republican nominee, of course, was Warren Harding, a uh, former senator from Ohio, who correctly gauged the national mood and won an overwhelming victory on the uh, campaign slogan of return to normalcy. Yes, and the Democratic opponent was uh, from Ohio, Mr. Cox. And he had a vice presidential nominee as his uh, partner, and that was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Right. So let me ask you about uh, immigration. We talked about the fact that there was an effort to deport people who were not American citizens, didn't get where the proponents wanted to be. But there was a congressman from, uh, I think, Washington State, uh, Congressman Johnson. And he ultimately prevailed in getting the laws changed. And what did he do? when the, the Johnson-Reed Act was passed in uh, this period of time, and how long did that affect our immigration policies? 
Well, the United States has always had a lot of tension about immigration, and it almost always takes the form of the people you know, whose ancestors came here a couple of generations ago object to the people who are coming in now who are coming from some other part of the world. Like right now, most of the ire of the anti-immigration people is focused on immigrants from Latin America. In those days, there was no big flood of immigrants from Latin America, but there was a continuing wave of immigration from Europe. But it was coming from Southern and Eastern Europe rather than from Northwestern Europe, where most white Americans' ancestors had come from. So the people that the nativists here were objecting to were basically Poles, Italians, and Jews. Uh, very strong feeling against them which was all wrapped up also with the eugenics movement, which was a big thing at that time, and which, uh, you know, this sort of pseudoscience movement that uh, proved by measuring skulls and so forth that people like Jews and Italians belonged to some subspecies of humanity that was inferior. So there was a lot of agitation on this score. Albert Johnson, whom you mentioned, was a congressman from Washington State who had built his whole career on opposing immigration. First, back in Washington, immigration from Japan. Then once he got to Washington, D.C., uh, you know, immigration from Europe. And he was the co-author of the 1924 Immigration Act, which basically slammed the door on large numbers of new immigrants into this country for the next uh, 41 years. And it was that act, the Johnson-Reed Act, which helped to keep out the many refugees from the Holocaust, uh, including relatives of mine whose lives might have been saved if they had been able to enter the United States when fleeing from Hitler in the late 1930s. So we've been in a conversation about your new book, which I uh, found fascinating, uh, American Midnight. Now that that book has been completed and uh, been well-received, what is your next book going to be? I wish I had an answer for you, David, but I don't. I often get stuck trying to move from one book to the next. I don't have writer's block when I'm working on a book, but I get what you might call subject matter block in trying to figure out the next book. And I think it's because of this. When you write a book, you know, in my case, you work on it for three or four years, six or eight hours a day. You really have to be obsessed and fascinated by it. And 95% of the things that obsess and fascinate me do so because somebody wrote a very good book about it. So how I find my way around that barrier and figure out a new approach to a subject is not easy to do. And I'm still working on it right now. So I haven't got an answer for you there. Okay. Well, well thank you for writing this book and this conversation with us today. And I, I'm going to uh, wrap up our conversation with Adam Hookshield, who has written uh, The American Midnight. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure for me. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.